0: Welcome to World Policy on Air, a weekly podcast from the pages and website of World Policy Journal, published by the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. I'm David Alpern. In this week's program, posting February 5th, 2016, we talk with award-winning reporter Anjan Sundaram about his talking policy feature for the WPJ website about the repressive Kagame regime in Rwanda, and especially the silencing of independent journalists. We'll also point out top features in the new WPJ winter issue, Latin America on Life Support. But first, some timely insights from Washington with Paul Brandis, who runs the West Wing Report's news service.
1: Well, the dramatic drop in oil prices is reverberating through the U.S. intelligence community, which is assessing the short and long term impacts on Russia and Saudi Arabia. Both are under severe and increasing financial strains. Government budgets for both Moscow and Riyadh are heavily dependent on revenue from exports of crude, but with prices now hovering in the low 30s, analysts think the political pressure on both Russian President Vladimir Putin and the Saudi royal family is increasing. Beyond the still-glittering lights of Moscow and St. Petersburg, for example, there have been reports of protests from citizens who have seen salaries cut or, in some cases, gone months without being paid at all. Both Russia and Saudi Arabia are known for being politically repressive states. The question U.S. analysts are asking is how long will oil stay this low, And could it mean additional and larger unrest? Very big questions indeed. The latest worry for the U.S. about the Islamic State now concerns Libya, where the number of ISIS fighters is now estimated at up to 6,500, twice the number of just a few months ago. President Obama is said to be reluctant to use military power, though, reportedly telling aides that stabilizing the Libyan government is the more pressing issue. Even so, the Pentagon is exploring its options, air special forces, beefing up Libyan militias, or some combination of these. And with less than a year to go before leaving office, the president is looking at a heavy travel schedule. Three major trips are on the books, a G7 meeting in Japan in June, a NATO summit in Poland in July, China for the G20 in September, and probably Peru for the Asia-Pacific Economic Summit, that one coming after the November election. Other possible trips include the Summer Olympics in Rio de Janeiro and a groundbreaking trip to Cuba now that Washington and Havana have resumed formal ties. For World Policy On Air, I'm Paul Brandis at the White House.
0: You're listening to World Policy On Air. Now this.
1: Nwansabye kuzakomeza kuyobora igihugu nyuma y’ibihumbi bibiri na cumi na karindwi. Nkurikije uburemere bwabyo, imyumvikanire mwabihaye, nta kuntu ntabyemera. Uwo hasigaye inzira zisanzwe, bigomba kunyuramo igihe n’ikigera. Ari ndibwira icyo watugamije atari ugushaka umuyobozi w’igihugu.
0: Rwanda's dictatorial president, Paul Kagame, announced last month that he will seek a third term in 2017, following a December referendum, allowing him to serve beyond the constitution's previous two-term limit. Quote, given the importance and consideration you attach to this, I can only accept, he told the nation on TV, not unexpectedly. Adding less persuasively, I do not think our aim is to have a president for life, nor is that what I would want. To spotlight Kagame's repressive regime since the genocidal Hutu slaughter of Tutsi in 1994, and especially the silencing of independent journalists in the country, World Policy Journal spoke with award-winning reporter Anjan Sundaram for its new Talking Policy website feature. Sundaram's new book about Rwanda is Bad News, Last Journalists in a Dictatorship, and I discussed it with him recently for this podcast. Anjan Sundaram, welcome to World Policy On Air. Thank you, David. Thank you for having me. First, explain the result of the referendum. Old-fashioned vote-rigging a population brainwashed by the official Kagame news narrative, or simply fear of opposing him? So
2: all of the above, uh, Kagame uses a technique called rehearsed consensus in which the population is gradually sensitized to what the government would like them to do. There is also a genuine fear in Rwanda Of what might happen should Kagame leave and this is because Kagame has left no alternatives in the country no alternative political leaders to take his position and that was borne out and showed very clearly in the fact that he could not find a successor to replace him at the end of his two term limit uh, something he had promised to do for a long time Uh, it shows that, that his circle of support has grown really small and that any viable uh, alternatives in Rwanda simply don't exist. He doesn't trust anyone.
0: What did you consider your role or your responsibility as a foreign journalist working in Rwanda, and how did the restrictions on the local journalists affect this?
2: So the local journalists and I were working from very different positions. The local journalists had a stake in their society. They wanted to fight for their freedom, and they were working with the hope that their children and their families would live in a freer Rwanda. Uh, and to do this, they took significant risks and put their lives in danger in some cases. Uh, the Rwanda's government has been incredibly repressive of journalists who have criticized the government. My own position was quite different. I saw myself as a teacher who needed to help my students when they were in trouble and I helped them Uh, due to natural sympathy that I felt for them as I got to know them better and got to know about their mission and the passion with which they conducted their work. This meant that I was in less danger than they were because I was a foreigner, but it also meant that I could take greater risks. So for most of my time in Rwanda, I didn't publish articles. I collected information, I conducted interviews, and I explored the country and I stayed silent Uh, in order to be able to help my students as best as I could and not be expelled from the country. Uh, And this was the biggest trade-off I made. I had to keep silent for a long time. And this book, Bad News, is a result of all the information and interviews and experiences that I gathered during my time of silence in Rwanda.
0: You draw parallels between Rwanda's current political dynamic and uh, the, that leading up to the genocide in 1994, particularly in terms of the enforcement of a single state-directed narrative and the silencing of alternative voices. What does this suggest about the degree of change that's happened in the country since the genocide?
2: So on the surface, it looks like Rwanda has made incredible progress since the genocide. It's a calm country. It's stable. There seems to be economic growth. The foreign, foreign donors who support Kagame's regime say it's an island of stability in a troubled region, but the truth is that in uh, the same structures that were in place in Rwanda prior to the genocide and during the genocide are still in place today. President Kagame has not only retained these structures, but reinforced them, and this doesn't augur well for the Rwandan people. The level of control is really extreme. There are no free institutions. There is no free press. There's no parliament or justice with any set of power. And Kagame, even his most ardent supporters would agree that President Kagame, his power is almost absolute. Uh, when Kagame announced that he would run for a third term, violating previous promises to respect the two-term constitutional limit that had existed in Rwanda, Uh, The parliament said only 10 Rwandans, they had found only 10 Rwandans who who had opposed his constitutional change. Now he's conducted a classic dictatorial move and said the people need him, so he's going to stay. But given the structures that are in place in Rwanda, Rwanda is still a structurally unstable place, and it looks increasingly unlikely that there will be a transfer of power from Kagame without Mm -hmm. violence.
0: Well, that's the politics. Do you think Rwandan society has recovered to any extent from the genocide, to whatever degree that's even possible, uh, even if the state might not have changed much at its core?
2: So I think there's a natural desire among Rwandans to recover from the genocide, and time has healed some of the rips. Unfortunately, much of what happened during the genocide is still very murky. Uh, Research independent research that contradicts the official government line is still prohibited in Rwanda. Uh, Researchers who have opposing hypotheses have been thrown out of the country, expelled, have had their data destroyed. And all this is to support Kagame's narrative that he was a force for good during the genocide. He was opposing evil and to cast himself as a hero. Uh, What this means is that for many Rwandans who lost family members, during the time of the genocide, many to Kagame's forces, they can't speak up about those losses. They can't speak up about the family members they lost, and they cannot commemorate or remember their loved ones in a public way. And this has led to continued tension within society, uh, resentment within society that uh, may well boil over and lead to new violence. There's certainly... Uh, anger among many Rwandan constituencies uh, about the fact that they cannot speak about their uh, losses in the same way.
0: But they get along in a,
2: in a day-to-day way? On the surface, it looks like they're living in harmony and peace. They live side-by-side. Side. They perform daily activities jointly. But really, uh, like much of what happens in Rwanda, with incredible participation rates, uh, the survivors and victims are living together largely because the government has said that this is what they must do. And this is the new Rwanda. And even if their emotional tensions have not been resolved, and there is no space in society to resolve or discuss those tensions, uh, the government has said that we must live together. There is no alternative. And Rwandans uh, have complied, just as they comply with almost any government order, whether it's the eradication of plastic bags, which happened overnight, uh, wearing slippers, which happened overnight, or participating in the elections, going out to vote, which, which, in which they participated with unheard of participation rates in any other country.
0: Say more about the
2: plastic bags and the slippers. Sure. So, the system with which gov- Rwanda is governed today is a system of villages, umudugudus in Kina, Rwanda. The entire country is divided into these villages. Each village has about 100 people, 100 families. Each village has a chief and an informer, and orders and information is passed from each village to the center in Kigali, in the capital, and back through the structure. Uh, It's an incredibly powerful structure. As soon as uh, the center in Kigali, the government, gives an order, for example, to eradicate plastic bags, that order is transmitted down to the level of the village and is executed almost instantaneously. When... Kagame ordered that plastic bags be banned from Rwanda. It happened almost overnight. Uh, when Kagame ordered that people wear slippers, that too happened almost overnight. And when uh, uh, the elections occurred in Rwanda, people, the orders were transmitted down to the villages, and everyone was mobilized for the vote. This same structure existed in Rwanda prior to the genocide and during the genocide, and was a reason for the genocide being so effective and efficient and quick. When orders came down from the central government, the genocidal government in 1994 to kill, people went out on the streets within a matter of hours with their machetes. And it's an incredibly powerful system that Kagame has not only retained, but has reinforced. And so the real question is, should Rwanda keep a system that is so catastrophic, even if Kagame is using it for other purposes? Um, And This is a system Kagame uses today whether it's for plastic bags or to bring out the vote.
0: I assume the plastic bags was his effort to look politically or I should say environmentally correct to the outside world and as you say uh, foreign governments tend to see Rwanda as uh, at least on the surface an island of stability but another issue that you bring up in the book is the role of foreign embassies and their governments in supporting the Rwandan government and its repression uh, by providing large sums of aid. What do you think other countries should be doing about the current situation in Rwanda, and why are they not doing it? The question is,
2: why is the world supporting the dictatorship? And uh, foreign governments are supporting, are sending huge amounts of money to Rwanda, in part because of guilt uh, for not having intervened during the genocide, which is true. Uh, and the world wants to make reparations for that. But it's also because Rwanda's government has been so efficient at executing aid plans that Rwanda's a paradise for development officials. Uh, Development officials and aid agencies that are struggling to find results and justify aid programs in other parts of the world come to Rwanda and find that their plans are executed almost to the letter. Uh, As long as the government approves them and the order goes out, people participate in great numbers and comply. And so aid officials, all they have to do is draw up these plans and come to Rwanda and they see these plans become reality. It's a, it's a small paradise. And so there's a perverse relationship now between donors and, uh, and the Rwandan government in which the repression now supports the execution of aid programs. And these donors then are patted on the back for having executed these Aid programs so successfully and they receive promotions when they go back home uh, what do I think uh, donors should do in Rwanda today I think uh, in the case of an emergency such as a genocide or other emergencies famine the case for intervention is very clear and uh, lives must be saved but in Rwanda today what donors are doing is uh, supporting and strengthening a highly repressive government and they're making this government very efficient Uh, without checks and balances on this government without an assurance that people can speak up and have recourse to justice should the government do their harm it is very difficult for donors even to know if this efficient and powerful government is doing good or harm to the people and so donors must take responsibility for both the successes and the harm that is being done in Rwanda today, much of which goes unreported. Donors would be far better off not channeling their money through the Rwandan government, which is largely what happens today, and supporting independent organizations and NGOs that are improving the health of Rwandan people, improving the agriculture, improving the Rwandan people's lives, but without strengthening Rwandan government structures that are highly, highly repressive, and in which the people have no real say.
0: The period that the book covers ends in late 2013. Has the state of independent journalism changed at all since that time? Not at all. There is
2: no free press in the country today. There is no independent journalism. There are many good journalists in Rwanda today. They just fear to practice their profession because they fear the consequences from the Rwandan government. They have seen colleagues be killed, imprisoned, or forced to flee the country for fear of their lives. Um, When the Rwandan government held a referendum a couple of months ago to decide whether the two-term limits on presidents should be removed for President Kagame, the government announced that only 10 Rwandans uh, opposed that change. It shows how few Rwandans uh, dare to speak up and oppose what they know to be government policy and preference. The Rwandan government more broadly doesn't seem to understand the benefits that a free press would Provide to the country's development and to what the government states as its own policies. Uh, the government also makes the argument unfounded that the free press, particularly radio broadcasts, contributed to the general riot, genocide in 1994. Uh, while media broadcasts certainly did uh, inflame the genocide and goad people to go out and kill, the media in Rwanda at that time was very much not free. Anyone who opposed the genocide after the government announced uh, the order to kill, uh, anyone who opposed the genocide was silenced or even killed. And so what you had in Rwanda today was a single voice reaching the people, the voice of the government that was supporting genocide. And the media environment in Rwanda is not that different today uh, in that there are no voices that, support the gov- uh, that oppose the government uh, regardless of what the government says. Very few people dare to speak up and say that they oppose what the government is, is doing even when the government is doing harm to people.
0: Based on your description of uh, Kagame's carefully crafted uh, narrative, uh, this book represents a disruption to the way the country is typically portrayed, both in domestic media in Rwanda and in international media. How do you see the response to the book in Rwanda and particularly the government's response already, and what do you expect to come? So,
2: in Rwanda, there is some level of dialogue and discussion. or or there used to be in in the English press, uh, English books that are somewhat critical of the government are distributed or can be bought in Rwanda. And this is largely because the people can't read English, uh, for the most part, they they speak and read Kenya Rwanda, the local language, my narrative is somewhat disruptive, but there are there is it's my narrative is somewhat disruptive, but it is founded on a vast body of academic research that supports my work, uh, that has flagged the repression in Rwanda and has been critical of Kagame's regime for some time. Um, I know that people in Rwanda are reading my book. Uh, I've received numerous messages from journalists who fled Rwanda, uh, whom I don't know, but I know uh, I recognize their names because I did research on them and I list them in my appendix in the book. Uh, in which I list uh, 60-plus journalists who have been killed, been imprisoned, tortured, or have had to flee the country for fear of their lives after criticizing the Rwandan government. The Rwandan government, on the day of publication of my book, there was an article in the Rwandan press um, purportedly from a source in my book claiming that uh, the book was full of lies and fabrications. Uh, I I, I think this is clear... Uh, classic government propaganda, and uh, it was published in a pro government newspaper and It only strengthens my message that there is very little space in Rwanda today for dissenting narratives uh, and narratives that criticise the government 's position. The reason I wrote this book is because many Rwandans uh, many Rwandans had recognised that their government is heading in a direction that isn 't healthy for society that doesn't go well for the future, and that may lead to violence. And having experienced genocide, they are very concerned about the direction the country is taking. Some of these, journal- some of these Rwandans decided to speak up, confront a very dangerous and powerful system, and uh, criticize the government, and they suffered for it. Many of their names are not spoken in Rwanda today because they're seen as enemies of the states. And I wanted to make sure that these journalists and the work they did and their courage was not forgotten. Uh, And this is one of the reasons uh, or the main reason that I wrote this book to make sure that their efforts were not forgotten and to record as as much as I could of their stories.
0: Are you going back to work in Rwanda? Can you go back safely? (laughs) That's a good
2: question. Uh, I haven't tried. I guess it will cost me a couple of thousand dollars to find out. But I do know that Researchers and journalists have been banned in, from Rwanda for far less, uh, lesser criticisms. So I doubt very much that I would be able to go back. And this is something that I was very conscious of when writing the book. I realized that I would have to forsake many of the relationships I had in Rwanda. Uh, people can, cannot be associated with me anymore. And many of the friendships that I built during my five years there, I simply cannot continue because it is too dangerous for people to be in touch with me now.
0: Anjan Sundaram, thank you. Thank you so much, David. Award-winning reporter Anjan Sundaram's new book on Rwanda is Bad News, Last Journalist in a Dictatorship from Doubleday Random House. Featured in the new WPJ Winter issue, Latin America on Life Support, You'll find articles about economic and social evolution in the region, defiance and despair in Venezuela, the changing face of Cuba, as well as black sites on the Internet and deadly interactions on the Syria Turkey border. World Policy On Air is a production of World Policy Journal at the nonprofit World Policy Institute in New York. Editor Christopher Shea, managing editor Jaffa Frederick, podcast producer Matthew DeMello. I'm David Alpern.